Good, I'd like to ask for your attention, some considerations on practice. I'd like to give some thought on the fourth of the Satipatthanas, which is um, when you read the text, uh, surprising in some way. While the first three Satipatthanas, if you read their uh, instructions, it's fairly obvious that you can transform these instructions into practical exercises of meditation. Yeah? All three asks us, ask us to stop, proliferate about experience. They ask us to stop over-identifying with the discursive aspect of experience, but instead meet the somatic in the somatic the hedonic in the hedonic, the affective in the affective, and actually change our relationship to the ground of that experience, which is either bodily or it is concerned with pleasure or displeasure, or it is concerned with um, states of mind and uh, qualities of volition, qualities of uh, emotion. And in some way, there is much work to be done in this. They ask us to learn that these three grounds of our experience are giving rise to a lot of perceptual process, a lot of cognitive process. And we are um, urged, instead of thinking about and continuing with the energy from these different grounds, but actually turning back to that ground, getting back to the ground, getting back to the ground. Much can be gained in this. Much can be understood. Our propensity to identify, our insatiable uh, tendency to think about what we actually experience and what we claim that we want is the experience, but then we end up spending an increasing amount of time and energy on the processing of that experience in conceptual terms and the solidification many aspects of our experience start to take when we give ourselves to the process of thinking. For example, the, the solidification of a notion of who you are, of who I am, of what the world is, of what this sort of people are like or that sort of people. In other words, this profound shift from a completely dynamic process experience that our senses provide us and the not-so-process-oriented way our mind works. You know, the mind, with the help of perception, with the help of sanya, imposes little frames on an essentially fluid sensory experience. And because the frame is easily managed, while the fluid experience is not easily managed, I retain the frame. So instead of actually being in touch with the fluidity of my sensory experience, in other words, with change, with conditionality, with impersonality, I am in relationship to the, to the little frame I've placed over this part of experience. Yeah? And then I kind of garner these frames, take them home, remember them. Yeah? And the next time something vaguely resembling what I have framed here comes up, I put my little frame back on and say, ah, this is this. I know this. Thank you very much. I have my opinion on this. So there's a profound habit of this. And this goes way beyond the belief in a, a little Atman or so in here somewhere at the core of our experience. Our attachment to these frames, our attachment to Sanya, to our interpretation of the world rather than our capacity to be in touch with this world immediately is profound there are good reasons for that some of some of that uh, some of those reasons have to do with uh, solidifying a world that is inherently transient and that is an uneasy position to be in so we make this world more solid with the help of conceptual abstractions you can do that without being an intellectual. You don't need to know the words for this to happen, to have this happen in your experience. Yeah. Thinking is not just a problem for people with a PhD. 
uh, of, of ditti as one of the great sources for attachment is by no means the prerogative of intellectuals. Yeah. I've met some really stupid people who were profoundly attached to some of their really stupid ditties. So it doesn't really take a lot of intellectual prowess to actually create a view and to create attachment, just to be clear on this. Yeah. The refusal to think about how thought works, or the refusal to think about how uh, perception works, or to refuse to, <laughs> to reflect your own experience, is by no means uh, a freedom from that. Yeah. Just because you refuse to consider and reflect on the nature of your experience doesn't mean you're free from attachment to that experience, or free from beliefs, or free from, it, from identification. In fact, you're more prone to profound and unreflected identification if you refuse the reflection on what your premises are, what your wants and needs are, what your intentions are. The refusal to acknowledge all this will will bring you in a much worse situation than the, the sober assessment of what you might want, what this mind might want, what it is afraid of and what it looks forward to, what it, where it gains its safety and what it finds uh, challenging. The fourth of our uh, Satipatthanas is structurally different. As you know, the term Dhamma has variety of interpretations in the fourth satipatthana what we note is the the term there is is plural in other words it is um it is referring to two things one of them is dhamma as phenomena dhamma as things that occur in our mind anything can be a dhamma it's one of the most all-encompassing terms in buddhist teaching tricky one. We don't have a proper equivalent. Phenomenon comes close to it, only in where phenomena comes from. There is a, an opposite, which would be the noumenon, which uh, there isn't such a thing in the, when it comes to Buddhism. So while phenomena and are opposed to a noumenon in the Greek philosophy, um, when we understand the term uh, dhamma as phenomenon, it doesn't have such um, a, a counterpart. Yeah. Even nirvana is a dhamma in terms of Buddhism, while in terms of Greek philosophy, nirvana would not be a phenomenon. But if we can widen, make a very liberal, liberal interpretation of the term phenomenon in a sort of buddhified way, then this is probably as good as it gets as a as a as a blanket term for this uh, for what it means in the fourth satipatthana. So on one hand, we have individual events in the mind are the topic of our fourth satipatthana, but then we have a, a list of uh, rather specific groups of dhammas that turn up. So and that brings us to the second meaning of the term dhamma. Dhamma as a category peculiar to Buddhist teaching and important in Buddhist teaching as a heading under which experience can be grouped. Yeah. So this is a completely untranslatable term for a category that is germane to Buddhist teaching and that Buddhist teaching deems to be an important way how we can approach patterns in our experience. So what are these patterns? It's no secret. Um, it's the khandhas of grasping, the upadana khandhas, the five aspects of our experience, if grasped at. It is the awakening factors, the pajangas. It is the ayatanas, both the inner and outer ayatanas. It's the four noble truths. Those are the groups we are encouraged to use as categories to approach patterns in our experience. Groups that Oh, I forgot the hindrances, by the way. The hindrances are in there as well, the nivaranas. So these are groups. One of them is considered to be detrimental to the process of awakening. The others are considered um, to be wholesome and useful. And both, both the detrimental and the useful ones, we are 
encouraged to investigate. We are encouraged to approach the nature of our experience with those headings in mind. Yeah? Looking at our experience from the vantage point of those categories as suggested by Buddhist teaching. So often the interpretation of this fourth Satipatthana is taken apart. So the school says, you know, just do this, just do Bojangas and Nivaranas and Khandas and Ayatanas and the four truth, four Satchas. And that's what the Buddha really meant. That's why he listed them. You know, don't do anything else. Other schools say, um, actually, every object of mind is a legitimate um, object of your investigation. Every state of mind is an orig- a, a legit- legitimate object. Uh, object of your investigation. So what that fourth Satipatthana basically mean? Uh, all things that arise basically hold the potential to take you to awakening, to reveal the characteristics of impermanence, of conditionality and of impersonality. I believe the most powerful way to interpret this is to actually marry those two interpretations and say, well, yeah, let us meet all phenomena, because all phenomena as our raw material for understanding how the mind works seems that's really all uh, that's really encompassing, and it makes investigation it validates my type of experience because um, I can then suddenly turn my type of experience not into a problem, but I can actually see in it a genuine possibility to investigate and an investigation in that type of experience is a legitimate form of practicing satipatthana which seems a useful attitude but then we are actually encouraged to look at my type of experience under peculiar headings yeah is this a hindrance is this an awakening factor can i discern the four truths in there the dynamic of the four truths can i can I discern, rather than making a statement about me or mine or my experience or my world or my life, can I discern five khandas in there? So we are encouraged, after validating our personal phenomenal experience as a legitimate ground for practice, we're actually encouraged to use particular categories of understanding of human experience derived from Buddhist teaching to apply those specifically to my experience. So look at my experience in terms of khandhas, in terms of ayatanas, in terms of nivaranas, in terms of bhajangas, in terms of the satchas. It's not immediately apparent how any pondering of those rather voluminous teachings, as you know, all of these teachings have a a bulk of um, corresponding texts that tell us more about these teachings. The section on the Kanda in the Samyutta Nikaya is a whopping big third, uh, one of the most lively uh, parts of the Samyutta Nikaya, full of wonderful analogies and uh, very graphic images, by the way. Definitely recommend it. So the Kandavaka in the Samyutta Nikaya is huge. Um, so how do I get that into my formal meditation practice? Well, as indicated, it may be necessary to enlarge your notion of formal meditation practice beyond your cushion. You know? Or it may be necessary to uh, familiarize yourself more deeply with those <coughs> with mapping those slightly remote Pali terms with actually bits and pieces of your own experience. Do the honest and humble translation work of trying to understand a scriptural teaching actually and map this into my experience. What does this mean for me? Where do I meet this bit? What is a rupakanda? What is attachment to a rupakanda? What is identification with feelings, feeling tone? Where do perceptions in my world play a role? Where do they form my emotions, for example? Somebody, you eat something and it's pleasant and you have perceptions of um, this being a nice piece of uh, food you're eating here and then somebody comes and tells you what's in it. 
And the food doesn't taste any different, but your perception of that food suddenly changes because you realize uh, they've put garlic in there and you don't do garlic, or they've put something in there you have feelings or views about. So even though the taste is still good, now the perception has changed and your experience of that of that eating uh, completely shifts from, you know, maybe you feel funny or you feel nausea even, or you, you kind of push the plate aside and say, oh, can't have that or something like this. So how are we affected by perception? What do we find attractive? What do we find appalling? How are we affected by impulses? How do we identify with impulses? You may not think that you identify a lot with impulses, but if you're waking up and you have low energy, and you, you realize your life doesn't make sense because now you have had a bad night and you have no energy. And you can't possibly envisage to meditate when you have low energy. You can't possibly envisage to work, to think, to meet friends, you know. Then you know that you're identified with uh, impulses or with the absence of impulses. You know, it's, it's necessary to reflect on this. Um, Vijnana Kanda is an interesting one. Uh, the definition of Vijnana in the Kandas is slightly vague. Um, the most meaningful way I have come to make sense of this is that you never get Vijnana as a clean experience. You never, when there is no object, there is no Vijnana, and when there is an object, Vijnana slips under the object and carries the object to the faculty of mind that is capable of understanding. But you do get vinyana in terms of its effect. Whenever you have experiences connected with vinyana, the experience is divisive. It feels like there's somebody in here and there's a world out there. The person in here is subject to the experience and the world out there is the object of the experience. Now such knowing <coughs> is inevitably problematic. So. That's why the term vijnana, which very neatly states that, a divisive type of knowing, the jnana in there is the good bit, we're quite keen, and the vijnana is the splitting bit, which tragically does that uh, a cleft between me and world, between object and subject. Now, <clears throat> there is much, much has been said on this, uh, on the duality of experience uh, and uh, the, the problematic nature of experiencing the world and oneself in dual in a dual mode, um, Indian traditions have come up with with all kinds of profound insights. Meditative traditions, particularly, um, as long as we are affected by knowing the world through sense consciousness it is clear that that sense consciousness will result in a divisive type of understanding about us and about the world. And that divisive type of understanding cannot be argued away by logic or it cannot be smothered away by, um, by states of uh, expansiveness. It cannot be made to go away by samadhi alone. Yeah. Um, so we are... In a crux, we know that the knowing we derive via vijnana to be problematic. At the same time, we cannot will ourselves out of the bag. It is a question of realization until from vijnana uh, occurs a capacity to know things in direct, in immediate ways. That doesn't stop our senses from functioning in dual ways. You know, when you look at something, it just feels as if there is somebody in there and something out there. It just feels that way. That's like when you see the sun going down. You know, you stand there, you're looking at beautiful sunset, and you're, you you see the sun going down. And you know, you know, you've learned that in school. You've learned that it's actually not the sun going down, it's the earth turning away. You can say it's turning away, you know, uh, one degree every four minutes. We know that. And yet, when you stand there and you look at that sunset, it just feels like the sun is going down and you're standing still. Yeah? All your senses are telling you this. The knowledge 
is not at all borne out by your empirical experience. Your empirical experience is sun is sinking into the sea. Yeah. You do know this is not true because you know something about the rotation of the earth and the ratio to to the sun or the speed of that rotation and so forth and that has to do with the sun going down. We all know this. And yet, when we look at the sun, it just doesn't look that way, isn't it? It's that It just feels, our senses tell us what is not true. Our senses tell us we are still and the sun is going down. That's just how it looks. In the same way, vijnana produces in us the feeling, yes, there is somebody in here at the receiving end from this sense organ, and there's something out there which is not me, which is world. And it takes... It takes deep meditative experience and it takes deep reflection to keep getting a perspective on that conundrum that what our senses are telling us is not in an immediate way true. It is useful, our senses are generally giving us reliable experiences for functioning in this world, but they don't actually give us the whole picture. So, the fourth of the Satipatthana encourages us to keep applying these groups of teachings, the khandas particularly, the ayatanas, the sense spheres, both the inner senses and the outer sense objects, um, the, the, the development of the awakening factors, and the profound understanding and the release from the hindrances, the nivaranas, to be the patterns with which we approach our experience. That we look at our experience from under those headings. How useful is this for awakening? How how, how much of a hindrance is this to awakening? How useful is this, um, or how can I understand my experience in terms of the five khandhas rather than in terms of meanness or in terms of selfing? what Buddhist teaching so neatly calls uh, ahankara, mamankara, the eye-making and the my-making, which in Buddhist hybrid English we have learned to call selfing. We've turned this into an activity, which I think is quite accurate. um, Buddhist teaching has early on understood the problem is not just a belief in an Atman, but there is also another problem, which is that we derive a sense of self because it creates a how, however treacherous sense of safety in meeting a transitory world. And if I can hang on to a little self that at least stays for a moment stable, then I derive from that some psychological safety, some psychological comfort. So one of the aspects of teaching on anatta is not just impersonality as a statement, that there is no essence in here, there is nothing that stays congruent with itself and identical, but that I have a a fairly tenacious habit of creating little self-objects, creating little objects and a self that defines itself by meeting an object. And although the object changes, and obviously the self needs repatching up, it needs a lot of maintenance. That's particularly the case with things that don't exist. They need really a lot of (laughs) maintenance. That's that's the problem in the first place. Because they don't exist, they need an awful lot of maintenance. Uh, But why do we do that? Because we derive some degree of comfort, solace and safety. If I cannot hang on anything, at least I can hang on to my little self. I understood that in monasteries. That's the last thing people will let go of. You can take everything away from them. They will hang on to their opinions. They will hang on to their meditation objects. And they will hang on to a notion of self. You take everything away from a human being and he's going to hang on to these three. With the skin of his teeth. By the skin of his teeth. Because it, that is what gives us some form of comfort. And it's just silly to attempt to take people things away that give them comfort and safety unless you give them something more convincing. As a therapist, I would have to say it's even immoral to try to do that. Taking people's defenses away without offering them anything better in, their, in, in, 
in place is not just is it not really working if the person has a, a residue of sanity uh, he or she will resist your attempt to take away their defenses it's also immoral to do that it's plain immoral to take people things away that make them feel safe without offering them something that is of genuine value to them. Not just some abstract universal truth they may not have access to, but something that they can actually do and be with and help them live their lives. Yeah. So meditators are no different than other human beings. They hang on to stuff that makes them feel safe because we need safety, because we go to places where it feels unsafe. I need to feel safe. I can find disagreement with this, but it's just silly. This is just not how, how the world and human beings work. I know nobody who doesn't work like that. Yeah? We all need a ground to stand on, and we're going to be willing to experiment and meet our edges and go to um, the practice of introspection when we feel safe enough that we can handle this, that we have the resources, that we're not pulled over the table. So acknowledging where I do identify it tells me can be can be something I find out when I contemplate the khandas, for example. I can find out in which area I have a tendency to hold on, to grasp, to find safety. Much of our attachment is not is not pleasure-seeking. You know? Much of our attachment is not sheer hatred. Much of our attachment is just fear. You know? Much of our attachment is just wish to find safety, wish to find ground, wish to find structure, wish to find freedom from structure, if your conditioning is the other way around. Yeah? And it's legitimate. Being safe in an unsafe and transitory world seems a very legitimate way. The sober acknowledgement is just investing in itself as a strategy to be safe is badly misfiring. You know, it's a very, very unreliable, high maintenance and high dukkha inductive sort of strategy. And all of us will become highly keen on stop doing this we, as soon as we have alternatives, viable understandable, practicable alternatives. I know nobody who wants to stay stupid, who wants to say suffering, and who wants to say unawakened. All the people I meet, quite a few of them, and I meet quite a few of them, all the people I meet, they want in some way to seek happiness and safety. Nobody is there to just to make others suffer. Even the most cruel and the most ignorant and the most callous person I know still basically wants to be happy. And if, a, and if given a chance to do so, will prefer being happy rather than making other people unhappy. This is quite reassuring, isn't it, to know. Yeah. So the fourth of these Satipatthanas tells me to apply, now no longer my mind to a direct experience and to stop proliferating about this experience, in other words, to de-identify with it, to detach from it, to understand its mechanism, to be with it. But number four Satipatthana suggests, A, that all my experiences are valid objects of investigation, and B, that I am encouraged to use a particular set of categories to actually scrutinize my, uh, take as a vantage point to scrutinize my experience under, yeah, under this particular set. Um, what is not in that sutta and what technically also belongs into this category of work is something I would like to end with today. And this is um, four categories that lead to a fifth. They have no name for reasons I don't quite understood. They have not made 
the charts of Theravada Buddhism because I find them to be immensely useful. They often occur in the context of the teaching on khandhas, the teaching on aggregates or the aspects of experience. And these are four categories. And the basic job is to use these four categories and investigate something that keeps recurring to you. The first category in there is twofold. It is to understand that it arises and how it arises, to understand the category called samudaya. The term is the same as in the truth, uh, but it is uh, slightly different here. So if something keeps coming back at you in your meditation, you are encouraged to understand its arising nature. This is important. This is more important than you think, because if anything arises, it means it has been gone in, in somewhere in between. Anything that arises is not a permanent fixture in your experience. Anything that arises uh, will have fluctuation. In other words, as soon as it arises and fluctuates, you'll know it will not always be equally strong. It is not a stable experience. Whatever you may feel you're haunted by, what is the bane of your life or your practice or your ambition or your aspirations, as soon as you notice it is arising, you have to acknowledge it has not always been there and it is not always of the same strength. And with that, you have established that it has causes, that it has conditions, and that you may, even when you may be helpless when it arises, you may not be helpless when it comes to addressing the causes and conditions. So the arising of a thing is of crucial importance, acknowledging the arising of, say, a recurrent pattern in your mind. Then the next one is an interesting term, it's atangama, which means the going home, yeah, going down. Uh, it's used for the sun going down, or it's used for things to go home. Um, the going home of a thing, so the opposite of the arising. So you establish of something that is... Uh, tenacious in your experience that may stop you from deepening your stillness or that keeps coming back, you establish very profoundly that it ceases, that it goes home, that it is not always there. Both that it does that and how it does that. The next two categories are very profound. The first one <clears throat> is you contemplate what is the gratification of this particular thing. That's where meditators often miss out. They're quick to point out the disadvantages. You know, I don't want to be angry. Anger is, a, is not a nice thing. So being angry is not a nice thing. So I'd like, to, I'd like to be free from anger because I'm highly aware of its disadvantages. But then, you know, maybe anger also has advantages. And somehow, one of the reasons I cannot let go of anger may be because I have not admitted what the advantages are. So... The, the disadvantages are above board, the advantages are, uh, are being dealt with below the counter. Yeah. And as long as I'm not willing to look at, my, at the perks of being angry, um, I can long lament, lament the disadvantages of anger, as long as the acknowledgement of the gratification or the, the, the payoff from anger isn't really on the table, something just will not let go of that or depression, or greed, or control, or uh, somatization, or whatever your hap hap habits happen to be. So I am asked to soberly identify and ask the heretical question, what do I derive from this experience that I claim to be suffering under? Yeah. If you're sleepy, what does it mean? You know, what, what do I get by being sleepy? What do I actually gain? Or what am I spared by being sleepy? What is the advantage of my depression? Yeah. What is the advantage of my control habit, my compulsions? What do I not feel when I'm feeling compulsive about this or that? What, do, what am I being spared? With anger, it's particularly easy. Yeah? If, you, if you don't know how to have energy in your life, then anger is particularly attractive because suddenly you do have energy. 
If you've not learned to find other types of energy, as I said last night, you know, much of my energy came from this anger part, and I just didn't have any energy for anything else. So learning to have energy other than through anger is crucial. But maybe you feel weak, or maybe you feel nobody takes you serious. So when you get angry, suddenly people do take you serious. Yeah? Suddenly you find, actually, you have power. Yeah. So it's really tempting to be angry, just to have power. Because although it's ugly, it doesn't look nice, people don't like it, you don't make friends with it. But you do have power. Yeah? <laughs> Throwing a wobbly, suddenly the family outing stops. You know? Who hasn't experienced that? two-year-old olds who suddenly change whole family programs with a little tantrum. Yeah, that is a really validating experience. Developmentally, this is really crucial to know that you can f stop five people. Or you can even mess up their fun. You, know? you can't stop them from taking you there, but you can stop them from having fun. You can embarrass them. Screaming in church. You know? Great experience. Why do you think so many little kids have their tantrums in the bus or in the subway when, there's, when the audience is there? Yeah? You know, don't tell me a, a two-year-old doesn't know that her, her mommy is mortally embarrassed, you know, and this kind of sort of a crow's... fears the cliché of the crow mother uh, in view of 50 people sitting there just looking how heartless she is with that little helpless thing. Yeah? That little helpless link has a fairly clear idea what's going on there. Just don't tell me. I don't believe that this doesn't realize. There is, a, there is strategy to this. There is method to this. So, you know, we all have experienced that suddenly when our faces turn red and our voices go loud and, you know, and uh, we, we, we uh, go high-pitched, you know, things happen. I knew people who got past Afghani border police by throwing a wobbly as grown-up women, just because bearded, burly uh, Afghani border policemen with big guns just couldn't handle screaming white women. <laughs> you know, that's not what their conditioning had prepared them for. <laughs> just, you know, and when push came to shove, Rather than shoot it, they decided to let it go. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we are disastrously effective with our anger. Yeah? So why should I let go? Yeah? Why should I let go if this is a way to get energy, to get power, to feel alive, to have effectiveness? So no wonder I don't let go. Yeah? There's no amount of complaining about the disadvantages of anger will make me let go unless I have actually acknowledged what I get out of this. Why should I let go of my depression if people take care of me? If challenges are going away because people just stop challenging me because they see I'm kind of just sitting there and thinking three thoughts and uh, staring out of the window. Why should I let go of my depression if the world somehow, if that cup somehow passes me? <laughs> yeah. It's not pleasant, but, you know, they leave me in peace. I can hand over. She will take care of this. If I kind of abdicate, she will, somebody will do it for me. It's a tempting thing, you know. If you're afraid of not being able to do something and you just kind of collapse into a depressed heap. I'm not saying this is the only reason for depression, so please, I'm not downing depression. I know there's too many depressed people in this world and it's too much of a, an issue in in our lives and in our cultures, in our healthcare system, to, to be doing simple uh, etiology here. But sometimes our gloominess and our depressions are self-serving. Yeah. We get something out of this. Even if we are apparently suffering, we're getting something out of this. My hypersensitivity, I get something out of this. So we are asked in this contemplation, what is the gratification? What is the payoff? What is the kick of this particular thing that takes place in my life? The fourth one, predictably, is the opposite. Is what is the disadvantage? What is the danger in this? By the way, the third one is called asada, the enjoyment or the gratification, that which I get out of it. But think of it as a payoff. 
And the fourth one is the adinava, the disadvantage, the danger in something. So contemplating the price I pay for something. Now the teaching says that only if I hold up these four categories, the arising, the going home of something, the gratification and the danger in something, only then will I be willing to let go. Only then will I be willing to seek the fifth of the categories. This is Nisarana, the escape, the way out. Only after holding these four categories up. So looking at these four categories, I think is a legitimate extension of this fourth Satipatthana program, namely, if you find yourself confronted with things in your life or particularly in your meditation practice that keep coming back, look at it under, the, under those four headings. Does it arise? How does it arise? Does it cease? How does it cease? What is its gratification? What is the kick in it? What do I get out of this? What do I pay for it? What is its disadvantage? What is its danger? That I hold up these four categories as investigative criteria for what I do not seem to be able to divest myself of, both through stillness practices or through insight practices or through goodwill or through counter-agent uh, Brahma-viharas or something like that. So Pondages, Samudaya, Atangama, Asada, Adinava and Nisarana, the arising, the going home, the going down is number two, the gratification is number three, the danger number four, and finally the move away, yeah, the uh, Nisarana, the seeking the exit as the result when I hold these up and conclude that there is more pain in there than gratification. That I cannot hold something that I may like, but that keeps disappearing. And that I may not manage to stop something that I may not like from appearing time and again. Only if my heart has found the genuine wish to find release from this, will I march the path that leads to that release. As long as I secretly still believe that this pays off more than I have to pay for it, I will not let go. Yeah? Not by reason not by will, not by being browbeaten into it. It is the heart that does the decision on, on letting go. It's not the mind. And that heart for the heart to understand that it has to be honestly assessing, particularly the asada and the adinava bit, the gratification and the danger bit. And if it doesn't come up to the conclusion, it will probably keep hanging on. In other words, the pattern will persist in my life. And if the pattern persists, you know you need to look more closely. You need to pay deeper attention. You need to investigate more deeply. Good. Uh, please ponder this and let us practice.
some practicalities. Um, as far as I know, the discussion group today takes place. Uh, the interviews I have individually with people will be in the council house, but they will be in the small room. So for the people to see me this afternoon, uh, parallel to the discussion group, which I uh, have not heard, is uh, that anything else than it is happening. Um, the interviews will take place in the small rooms to the to the left if you turn to the left if you come in through the through the main entrance and um, yeah they c so they can happen conjointly for those people who will be leaving us on Sunday yeah good